I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. We begin in chapter 4 with unity within the body of Christ. Verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting." But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, before we deal with these verses, we must not lose sight of what is at the heart of the discussion that has dominated this letter to the Ephesians so far— and that's the equal footing of Gentiles within the body of Christ with the Jews. There's no difference between Jewish salvation and Gentile salvation. Paul assures the Ephesian Gentiles that the middle wall of partition has been broken down between the two in chapter 2. That's what he talked about there. Then in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul unveils to them the mystery that has been revealed to him, and here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So the discussion in Ephesians is designed to show that there is no inferiority whatsoever with Gentile salvation. Saved Gentiles are equal in the body of Christ with saved Jews. Now this chapter begins with Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians after he's just revealed his prayer for them in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. Based upon that prayer, in those verses, Paul gives them these words of encouragement in verses 1 through 3. Now, there's a Greek word that gets a lot of usage in verse 1, and that word is kaleo. That's the verb form translated called. In addition, the noun from the same root, klesis, is translated calling. Interestingly enough, the root is used in another compound word, and that word is parakaleo, and that verse translated, I beseech. Now, with the Greek prefix para, 
It means I call alongside or I exhort. So if you're looking for a calling, there it is in verse 1. Literally, I call you alongside myself to walk worthy, meaning in an approved manner, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now that calling is that of salvation itself. So as one who has been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, Paul instructs them, well, and us, to walk worthy. In other words, to walk in a fashion that reflects our appreciation for Christ's sacrifice. Now again, the emphasis here is to embrace the notion that these Gentile believers are just as called, just as worthy to be a part of the body of Christ, as are the Jews. Now if there's any question about what it means to walk worthy, well there's your answer in verses 2 and 3. He says, with all lowliness, with gentleness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. The uh, translation of long-suffering and bearing there captures the essence of Paul's admonition. The Greek word makrothemia is a compound word meaning to suffer long. And the Greek anekamai means to endure. Literally, Paul's exhorting them to not allow Christian brethren to get on their nerves. And why? Well, because they love them. And then finally, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is the bond of peace, and it maintains unity when believers are led by the Holy Spirit. So, to put verses 1 through 3 into perspective, when believers are responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, there is unity among them. Verse 1 says, in essence, live your life like a child of God. On the eve of the crucifixion, here's what Jesus said, talking to his disciples, he said in John thirteen thirty four and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the identifier of a believer ought to be the love that he demonstrates toward other believers. Paul clearly states that concept in verses 1 and 2, and puts the cap on it in verse 3 when he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Division, bickering, strife, they're all signs of the carnal nature of man at work. Make no mistake about it, when strife and friction exist in the local church body, that's the working of evil forces, not the Holy Spirit. Now, speaking of unity among the believers, Jew and Gentile, Paul develops this one theme in verses 4 through 6, when he says, one body, being the body of Christ, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope of your calling, Jesus Christ. One Lord, that again, Jesus Christ. One faith, and that's salvation by grace through Jesus Christ. One baptism, probably referring here to the mode of baptism. And then one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In other words, there's nothing different about the faith with regard to Jews and Gentiles. There is only one faith for all of us. For that reason, fragmentation in the form of division within the body of believers has no rightful place. Jews and Gentiles must all embrace the same spiritual components of our faith as one body of Christ. That's the essence of these three verses, but one clarification should be made regarding the one baptism. Water baptism is a picture, a token representing the change that's taken place in a believer after salvation. The actual baptism that makes the change is that of the Holy Spirit. There can be no question that the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the experience of all believers at salvation, is the miracle of God that makes salvation possible. 
However, in talking about Jewish versus Gentile salvation here, Paul's probably referring to the water baptism. And the reason is because here he's pointing out that Jews and Gentiles are baptized the same way, one baptism. Now, in another passage where Paul is addressing unity among believers, he said in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now that we've established that we are one in Christ, we see the diversity of the ministry of Christ working in each believer, by the Holy Spirit, of course, in verse 7, where there it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. However, we'll hold that thought for three verses and continue developing it when we get down to verse 11. In verses 8 through 10, Paul takes a little doctrinal detour. That's where he quotes Psalm 68:18 regarding the whereabouts of Christ between the crucifixion and resurrection. He actually quotes this psalm to continue his thought regarding his mention of Christ's gift in verse 7, also referenced by the psalmist. However, while on the subject, Paul develops an interesting already fulfilled prophecy concerning the captives of that psalm. Thus, this passage, along with several others in the New Testament, it gives us a fairly complete account regarding the home of the Old Testament saints before and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you'd like a complete picture of the implications of this passage and others, then study carefully the article that I've written. It's on the right side of the written page of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can find it under the topic section, and the article is entitled Paradise Relocated. In these verses, we see the descent and the ascension after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, verse 11 continues the same thought introduced in verse 7 before we took that little parenthetical detour on the gift of Christ. Verse 11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. The usage of a different Greek conjunction in that verse to connect pastors and teachers, Greek chi uh, instead of de, it would appear to combine them into one pastor-teacher office, the last category listed there. The gifted people who fulfill specific offices in verse 11 are those whom Christ has enabled to minister to the body of Christ at large since the cross to the present day. While the Greek word apostolos is transliterated into our English word apostle, and before the ministry of Christ simply meant messenger, I'm relatively certain that the apostles of this verse is a specific reference to the twelve apostles of Jesus himself, personally chosen by him. If you want to know more about that, then look at my notes on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. If one looks at the 81 occurrences of the Greek word apostolos in the New Testament, it's near impossible to conclude that Paul intends his reference here to apostles to be extended past the apostles appointed by Christ himself. Of course, Paul includes himself in this group based upon his discussion regarding this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Incidentally, verse 11 is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word poimen is translated pastor. In every other instance, it's translated shepherd. Before the completion of our canon of Scripture, the Bible, prophets facilitated the process of delivering God's Word to God's people. As a matter of fact, the entire text of Scripture was manifested originally through prophets. 
Prophets are those who receive direct revelation from God, the equivalent of Scripture. Many wonder if prophets still exist today. Well, I'll make two points to shed light on that question. First, God can manifest himself however he pleases, and he has chosen to do so through prophets in the past. But second of all, Moses was very specific in warning the Hebrews regarding the performance standards for future prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. I believe it's appropriate to apply this test to anyone who proclaims himself to be a prophet. Based upon this criteria, I've never personally met someone rising to that level of accuracy. We do know, of course, that God will send two prophets in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1-14 through 14, during the tribulation period. Now, what about the doctrinal position held by many that the gift of prophecy has been discontinued? Well, I discussed that on the notes, in the notes of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8-13. through 13. Based upon this, I'm inclined to adopt the position that the original twelve apostles and the first century prophets who were ministering to the body of Christ at large during that period of time, that they comprised the grand total of apostles and prophets to the body of Christ seen in this passage. After all, we are members, all of us, of the same body of Christ as the first century church. We benefit from their gifts as well as those early believers through the word of God left by them. Ministering to the body of Christ at large today are the offices of evangelists and, of course, pastors-teachers. Based upon my thoughts on Acts chapter 1, verses 12-26 through 26, regarding apostles and the study of the gift of prophecy from 1 Corinthians 13, 8-13 regarding prophets, I'm comfortable with the notion that their work in the body of Christ has been completed. The purpose statement for the New Testament church is found in verse 12. What is the job of the local church? Well, here's the answer, and it's in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Though translated as a verb, equipping there comes from a Greek noun, katartismos, which means fully qualified. The Greek noun for ministry is diakonia, which means serving. The Greek word for edifying is also a Greek noun, which means building. It's important to realize that the mission of the local church is for the equipping of believers, for service, and for building up the body of Christ. When believers are focused on the goals of verse 12, then unity comes as a natural process. So when the leaders of verse 11 focus their efforts on the mission of verse 12, what are those results? Well, there it is in verse 13. It says, "...till we all come to the unity of the faith..." and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's the unity that we started with in verse 3, which comes, by the way, when believers measure up to the perfect man of verse 13. Now, don't panic. Perfect here comes from the Greek word teleos, and it means complete or mature. The maturing process is gaining the knowledge of the Son of God. Believers must be equipped with God's Word to realize this in their lives. Now, let's contrast maturity in this passage to the concept of immaturity seen in children in verse 14. They're easily swayed and easily deceived, and that's bad. Spiritually mature believers are the grown-ups within the body of Christ. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Jesus is the head, and believers fit together with every part working effectively and growing in love. In verses 17 to 32, we see symptoms of a spirit-led life. Verse 17, 
This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So, how does a Spirit-led believer conduct himself? Well, first of all, unlike those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we see the description of their unacceptable conduct in verses 17 to 22. Notice the detailed description that Paul gives of unregenerate Gentiles when he says in verse 17 that they think without content, that they have their understanding in verse 18 darkened, that they're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. And also, verse 18, they have blinded hearts. And then it says in verse 19 that they're past feeling. In other words, they lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. Then it says in verse 20, given themselves over to lewdness. In other words, lacking any moral restraint. And this lack of moral restraint results in verse 20 of all uncleanness with greediness. Now, here's an important concept. These Gentiles about whom Paul's speaking here, they had no basis of morality. Subsequently, their standards of right and wrong were arbitrary. Such is the case today for those who reject the counsel of God. They have no moral basis. Paul addressed this same issue in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. As we see societies distancing themselves from God's Word, keep this in mind. When they reject God's word, they lose their fundamental foundation for right and wrong. At that point, anything goes. Now, if you know the truth, verse 21, Paul commands in verse 22 to put off that conduct of the old man and put on the conduct of the new man. He talks about that in the next two verses, verses 23 and 24. They talk about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a reference to being led by the spirit. The Holy Spirit's leading can only be experienced when one is filled by the Spirit, a natural result of practicing good spiritual hygiene. What is good spiritual hygiene, you ask? Well, just like the physical body needs physical nourishment and sound practices of hygiene, so the spiritual man also, the one that resides within you, he needs that same kind of spiritual nourishment. Now, here are the daily practices that I call good spiritual hygiene. Reading your Bible, praying, of course. 
fellowshipping with believers. We're talking about church there. And then sharing your faith or being involved in a Christian ministry where you're giving back. I'm convinced that these daily practices are essential for victorious Christian living. Understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in this process is vital. Oh, by the way, I've written an article entitled Good Spiritual Health that's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or you can click the link right here if you're looking at the written notes. When we exercise these, we effectively put on the new man. That's the reference of verse 24. The new man is the Holy Spirit within us and strengthened. These are sound activities that make the Holy Spirit's influence in your life strong. When the strength of the Holy Spirit is leading you, the admonitions of verses 25 to 32 just fall into place naturally. The lying of verse 25, the angry disposition of verse 26, the entertaining thoughts that would please the devil of verse 27, thievery verse 28, and unwholesome or harmful communications. Those are just a few of the negatives that, were we to engage, would grieve the Holy Spirit of verse 30. But Paul's not done, as we see in verse 31. He says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let's be clear. The Holy Spirit's leadership delivers believers from these attitudes and actions. Oh, one more thing. Let's back up for a moment to look at verse 30 again. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, the following, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us as God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. These two passages show us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation and serves as the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In other words, or the guarantee. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit working and every believer is God's guarantee payment on each of us. The literal assurance that we are children of God redeemed by the blood of the Lamb on our way to heaven. That's a concept also that's mentioned again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. That's where Paul says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. But wait, there's more. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the following. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul's clear on this doctrinal issue of the Holy Spirit. God gives each believer the Holy Spirit as a seal to validate and eternally protect the salvation of that believer. This ministry of the Holy Spirit begins at salvation according to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. That verse says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, Paul tells the Romans that each believer is in possession of the Holy Spirit when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the following. He says, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So, here's the bottom line. No one gets saved without the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is that same Holy Spirit which safeguards our salvation afterward. Look at the article that I've written entitled The Earnest of the Spirit. It's on the right-hand side of the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. Or you can just um, look at it under the topic section. Now here's the capper in verse 32. It says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. 
The Greek verb for forgiving and forgave here is a less frequently used word for the concept of forgiveness. It's charizomai, which literally means to freely give. That's important. It's a little more than just wiping the slate clean, so to speak. It means that we freely give to one another, well, like families do. As a matter of fact, there's that unity that we started out with at the beginning of this chapter in verse 3. Then in chapter 5, we're encouraged to walk in love. Verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now here Paul tells the Ephesians to imitate godly actions in verses 1 and 2. Those are actions that emulate God's love. In verse 2, Paul admonishes them to walk in love. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the Greek noun for love used here is agape, an indicator of sacrificial love. As a matter of fact, there's the definition of agape right there in the verse when Paul continues and says, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Well, that's it. Agape equals love, a willingness to sacrifice. By contrast, the word for love that means a natural affection is philia, and it's not used here. The word for sacrificial love, agape, is used. Verses 3 through 12 warn us to avoid those who are rejectors of God, those who openly partake in immorality and defiance to the laws of God. As there's some very strong words here in verses 3 through 5. Uh, verse 3 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. In verse 4, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Verse 5, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ, and God. And as a matter of fact, a similar list is given in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Here's what those verses say. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's critical to understand that these verses describe those who practice this lifestyle. It's not talking about believers. 
The Scripture plainly teaches that God chastises Christians who defy His leadership. Look and see what uh, Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8 say. It says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, if you wonder what form this chastisement takes, then you just have to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. Let me read those to you. Verse 29 says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So here's the bottom line. God does not permit believers to defy him by practicing the conduct of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. That disobedient believer will experience the chastisement of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 32. Well, even to the point of being removed by God from this life through death, according to 1 Corinthians 11.30. Therefore, when you see someone practicing this corrupt lifestyle without the intervening hand of God, you can scripturally assume that no born-again experience was ever realized by that person. If you'd like more information on that issue of chastisement of disobedient believers, then look at my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. Now, I feel compelled to make a distinction here. There are those who are convinced that any sign of despicable conduct in professing believers is a certain indicator of a spiritually lost condition. If you read Hebrews 12 and 1 Corinthians 11 closely, you'll see that these Christians were experiencing chastisement for their sins, but were in fact, well, they were saved. Paul's very clear about the consequences of practicing the conduct of verses 3 through 5 when he says in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Moreover, believers should not involve themselves with these people, according to verse 7. It's a lifestyle that's based in darkness, not the light of Jesus, according to verse 8. Then verses 9 and 10 tell us that the fruit of the Spirit provides believers with a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. So how do we act toward those who are involved in this unacceptable level of conduct? Well, verse 11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. In verse 12, he says that we should even be careful how we talk about their reprehensible conduct. Paul expresses it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Believers are, well, they're supposed to shame and avoid those so-called believers, those who flaunt their rebellious conduct. Here's a good lesson on light in verse 13. Light reveals. God's word is compared to light in Psalm 119, 105, when it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Perhaps Paul is referring to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 and verse 14, when he encourages believers to walk in the light of Christ rather than following the works of darkness, works that are shameful and godless. 
Technically speaking, the verb translated he says in verse 14 can be translated he, she, or it says. There's no gender specificity there. Perhaps Paul is referring to a contemporary poem, saying, or song perhaps, with this quotation which characterizes the victory that is ours as a result of the resurrection. Some have suggested that it may have even been a saying or song used on the occasion of water baptism ceremonies. We really have no way of knowing for certain. In verses 15 to 21 of chapter 5, we have admonition to make good use of your time. Verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now these verses, verses 15 to 21, speak of making the best use of our time and investing it in one another for spiritual strength. Believers are encouraged in verse 15 to walk circumspectly, in other words, accurately. One who is a fool, the Greek word asaphos, means without wisdom. The ah there makes it negative, and Sophia is wisdom. Asaphos, the fool, he lives recklessly. A believer who is interested in pleasing God is careful with his personal testimony before the world, and he uses his time wisely, according to verse 16. As a matter of fact, that's the essence of verse 17 that says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. The Greek adjective for unwise there is aphron. It means not employing one's understanding. Of the eleven times it's used in the New Testament, it's translated as fool or foolish in every instance except right here. Here it's used in the context of a person who knows God's will but disregards it, which leads us to the analogy of verse 18 regarding foolish conduct. There it says, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's an amusing and, I might say, to-the-point message. Just as a drunkard's conduct is controlled by his excessive drink, so should a believer be equally controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit's influence within him. Hopefully, you'll also see in that verse that Paul's admonishing everyone to avoid drunkenness. Incidentally, Paul may have been thinking of Jeremiah 23.9 when he wrote this comparison between being spirit-led and drunk with wine— In that passage, Jeremiah says, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. The result of the Holy Spirit-led life is found in verses 19 to 21. It's pleasant interaction between believers. It's in verse 19. And it's thankfulness to God in verse 20 and submission to one another, meaning selflessness rather than selfishness in verse 21. That word submitting comes from the Greek verb hupatasso. It's a compound word. Hupa means under and tasso means to arrange or place. Therefore, the idea of submission is to place or arrange one under another. It indicates a chain of command. So after introducing the concept of submission in verse 21, then Paul deals with three areas of submission. Husbands and wives in verses 22 to 33, parents and children in verses, uh, well, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and then master-slaves in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. 
So let's dig right into the husband-wife relationship beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, in chapter 5, Paul's dealing with Christian conduct. These verses deal with the marriage relationship in comparison to the relationship Christ has with the body of believers known as the church. The Greek word for love here is agapao. This is the verb form of the noun for love, which is agape. That particular word means literally sacrifice. When Paul commands men to love their wives in verse 25, he's commanding them to make sacrifices for their wives. When folks make sacrifices for one another, well, a natural affection, which is the Greek context for the word philia, that's the result, natural affection, when sacrifice is made. So, sacrifice results in natural affection. The ultimate amount of sacrifice is illustrated by Christ's willingness to give his own life for the salvation of believers. We saw that in verse 2. Incidentally, that concept rebuilds broken marriages. If a troubled couple will simply return to the practice of sacrificing that practice that characterized the early days of their marriage or courtship, then the natural affection for one another will be rekindled. In the process of talking about relationships based upon love, we find a little doctrine of the church itself sprinkled into verses 26 and 27. There's where it says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. God's word sets apart. The word is sanctify. God's word sets apart and cleanses believers so as to provide holy believers to himself at the rapture. Now, by the way, the word sanctify is hagiadzo, and the word holy is hagias, and they come from the very same root word. The scriptural basis for the fact that believers are set apart for the rapture, uh, that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. However, the emphasis of this passage is that the relationship of the husband to the wife ought to be the same as the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church. And that's a thought that's continued in verse 28. But we're not finished with the husband-wife comparison to the church-Christ analogy. As a matter of fact, verses 28 to 30 again emphasize that husbands ought to be willing to offer the same level of sacrifice toward the wives as Christ did for the church, putting the welfare of their wives even before their own interests, just as Christ did for the church. 
If there's any confusion about the recipients of this sacrifice, that's cleared up in verse 30. It's us, believers. To reinforce his one flesh assertion of verse 29, Paul in verse 31 quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That verse says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He notes that Christ and the church relationship is a mystery. A mystery, the Greek word mysterion, means in the New Testament rendering, that which cannot be known naturally. In a general sense, the word means that which was previously hidden. As a matter of fact, you're hearing it first right here in this passage. Previously unknown, Paul declares that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, let me give you a little warning here. For those who are overcome with political correctness, you're probably not going to like the discussion that follows here, but let's go ahead anyway. And finally, we're back to the actual lesson of a husband's sacrifice for his wife and the wife's submission to her husband in verse 33, where it said there that she should respect him. I told you you might not like this. Don't make the news, just report it. This is a fascinating scenario here. The Greek verb used for respect is phobeo. It's used 93 times in the New Testament. It's only translated respect in this verse. The other 92 times it's translated either fear or afraid. As a matter of fact, the noun form of the word phobos is used another 47 times and translated fear or afraid each of those times, except two where it's translated terror. Obviously, nobody wants to go there in any great detail, but here's the formal definition of the word from the respected Greek-English dictionary from Lou and Nida. It, They say to have such awe or respect for a person as to involve a measure of fear. The phrase fear of God or fear God is a typical Old and New Testament indicator of one's proper relationship toward God. Now, Paul chose those words to describe the proper attitude of a wife toward her husband. Peter also weighs in on this husband-wife relationship in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, where he declares in verse 6, and says this, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So, as I frequently say, and said once already today, I don't make the news, I just report it. I just tell you what God's Word says. And then we have the relationship of children and parents in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. These four verses flow from chapter 5, verse 21, that's where Paul introduces the concept of submission. Now it's time to discuss the proper submissive relationship of children to their parents. Verse 2 is most interesting. It makes reference to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. What that verse says is, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. By the way, that's part of the Ten Commandments right there. Paul points out that this is the first commandment in the list of ten in Exodus 20 that's linked to a promise, and that promise is long life. Then Paul gives a reciprocal concept in this relationship, and it's this, that the fathers should not provoke children to wrath. A point he also makes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21, where he offers the reasoning behind the admonition in that passage, 
Here's what he says there. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. What about slaves? From time to time, people ask me that question, and here's Paul dealing with it in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Then I'll give you some comments of my own. Chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, slavery during the first century was a legal reality, and it had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded it. These slaves under Roman rule were not entire races, but rather certain people from within each race who happened to be in bondage as slaves. So how might one end up being a slave during that era? Well, derived from extra-biblical historical documents, here are a few ways. If you were born to a slave, you were born a slave, and you remained such unless your master gave you freedom. Promiscuity was rampant during that era. It was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders would harvest these unwanted babies and hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. It's also true that a debtor could lose his freedom, and he could be forced into slavery as a result. Additionally, sometimes slaves were formerly prisoners of war. Most slaves during that era, though, were probably products of uh, other slaves uh, born into slavery or born from harvested slave girls that had been abandoned and thus born into slavery. That was probably where most of them originated. Paul deals with the proper relationship between slaves and their owners. Now, he had no power to change laws governing slavery, so he simply dealt in this chapter with how slaves should be properly treated and how they should respond to their masters. Now, some have questioned why Paul didn't condemn slavery altogether in this passage. Well, keep in mind two issues at hand. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was the lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a benevolent slave owner was preferred by many during that era over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. His was a ministry of reconciliation to God. So here was a man writing to people from prison. Get that? He was in prison. He was enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to the slave owners who perhaps owned them. Then we have the battle and the armor in chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong of the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now these verses give us the understanding of our battle against the forces of Satan. For believers who don't realize they're in a battle, it's no wonder they're losing. Look, it's a, it's a war. Paul uses three different Greek words here in verse 10 for strong, when he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Greek word for strong there first is edunamao, meaning empowered. Its Greek passive verb form means that the power is transferred to us. And then secondly, he uses the word power, which is the Greek word kratos. It's a noun meaning power. And then finally, the word might comes from the Greek word eskus. It means strength or might. There's nothing like creative redundancy to make a point, wouldn't you say? Believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit with the full force of God's strength to fight the battle before us. That's a great promise. How is that? Well, verse 11 instructs us to tap into this power by putting on the whole armor of God. That supernatural armor is detailed in verses 13 through 17. The armor must be supernatural because of the enemy as depicted here in verse 11. It's the devil. The Greek noun for wiles here is methodia. It means trickery or deceit. Actually, our English word method is derived from that very same word. As you can see, this is no ordinary battle, but it gets worse. Verse 12 shows us the formidable allies of the devil when it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Oh, that's heavy. Since Paul went into great detail to describe our enemy, well, let's give some attention to each of these in verse 12. The principalities here comes from the Greek word archae, which means rulers. Powers, uh, that comes from the Greek word exousia. It means authorities used in the plural form. And then the rulers of the darkness of this age are literally the world rulers of the darkness of this age. The Greek kosmokrator means world ruler. Age here comes from the Greek word ion. And then we see spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. We should point out that Jesus himself referred to Satan as the prince of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. So we see that Satan is amassed a formidable foe comprised of rulers, authorities, and world rulers led by himself. His list seems to go from least to greatest, and it only demonstrates that Paul seems to be saying Satan's organized all of the world's authorities to combat believers. Did you realize we had so many enemies? Well, I'm afraid most believers don't. They're still trying to win favor somewhere along the way in that list. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He said this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. But just look at our tools of warfare in verses 13 through 17. Well, now here's the problem as I see it. Many, maybe most, most believers do not realize that they are in a battle. Let me assure you, Satan knows God has given us the tools of warfare, and we must exercise those tools. Now, just for clarity, let's list those items of armor possessed by each believer. First of all, having girded your waist with truth, that's the word of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Then we find listed the breastplate of righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Then we find the term having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Here's an action item, conveying the gospel message. Paul defines the gospel message in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. Then we have listed the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That wicked one is Satan. The faith of Christ, seen in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, combats the enemies of God. Then the helmet of salvation, which is security in Christ. Salvation, the Greek word soterion, is the noun form for the Greek verb sozo, means to save. Salvation is the result of being saved. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that's our Bible. If you want a fuller discussion of the sword analogy, look at my notes on Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. So, believers, there are your weapons. Let's get into the battle. And then finally, the close to the book of Ephesians in verses 21 to 24 of chapter 6. Verse 21, But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, the Tychicus of uh, verse 21 was one of the disciples that accompanied Paul on a portion of his third missionary journey. He appears in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. In this passage, he's to travel to Ephesus as a messenger of Paul. Peace and grace are extended to them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul often extends grace and peace in his letters, But here he's careful to note that these are intended for those who have a sincere relationship with Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.